0: Reflections on the Gospel of John, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part four: The Lamb of God is a sacrificial reference. We misread it because we we don't realize who is demanding a sacrifice in the Passion story and in this gospel. The Lamb we. we a sacrificial reading of this would be, well, God's in his heaven, he demands somebody pay the bill, Jesus pays the bill, and the rest of us are off. That's the sacrificial reading. And therefore, he's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, Jesus in the John's Gospel, it comes from the Father and returns to the Father. He comes from the Father. He's the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb that God is offering to the sacrificial monster. Who is the sacrificial monster? Humanity. It is humanity's sacrificial predilections that are being exposed and deconstructed in the passion story so that we can no longer blame it on God. We can no longer say God wanted that sacrifice. This is the lamb of God. This is not the lamb of the community given to God. This is the lamb of God given to the sacrificial community. And, he, and therefore, he is, going to, he is going to take away the sin, amartia means to miss the point, singular of the world cosmos means the human order what is the sin of the human order or etymology of sin means to miss the point what is the misrecognition at the heart of human order what orders human life it's the it's the victim the fate of the victim is misrecognized that's what gives the sacrificial system its coherence Because we do not see the victim, we do not hear the victim's voice. We have all our empathy for the victim extinguished, so that we so that's eliminated. It's the misrecognition of the the victimary mechanism, that makes sacrifice possible. It makes it possible for sacrifice to generate cultural order, which is what the word chaos, excuse me, which is what the word uh, cosmos means, order. John says I saw the spirit come down from heaven and abide in him. It's a very important word in John, the spirit abides in him. Andy Warhol says it it visits us for 15 minutes sooner or later in our lifetime. He's talking about fame, but the point is we ha- one can look at at Dave Singleman, you know, at a certain moment or the tattooed man at a certain moment and it's like the flag passes or there's a There's a sense of one's connection. But it doesn't abide. This is the one in whom it abides. And abiding is what it's all about. Abiding means being coherent. Abiding means... So Jesus in this gospel says, I abide in the Father. And if if I were you, I would abide in me so that you would come to abide in the Father. Because abiding is going to become increasingly important, friends, (laughs) <laughs> I said that. You think it's simple. Well, wait till we take away the temple and the sacrificial apparatus and you're going to find out how hard it is to abide. And so abiding becomes a very major thing. Jesus comes along the next day. John stood there with two disciples. Jesus passed. John stared hard at him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God. Hearing this, the two disciples followed Jesus, just what was called for. Jesus turned around, saw them following, and said, What do you want? First words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. What do you want? And they answer, Rabbi, where do you abide? Which is to say, What makes you real? You're real, they say. We found a real one, they say. And now they want to know what makes you real. Where do you abide? We learn right later on in the gospel, I abide in my Father so that you may abide in me and I and you and the Father abide in all of us. You see? Abiding is absolutely essential. Paul says, We live in Christ. Christ lives in us. Johanna and Jesus said, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. But we live in a world where what we say is, I cannot abide. I cannot abide. We cannot abide in our world. That's our problem. And so back to Virginia Woolf's Waves. Rhoda says, towards the end of the novel, Rhoda is experiencing the melting of the confinement of the ego into a larger, elastic, cross-pollinating dance of cells, but for Rhoda it has ceased to be fun. She says, But there is no single scent, there's no single scent, no single body for me to follow, and I have no face. But since I wish above all to have lodgment... Get the word. Lodgment. Abiding. Since I wish above all to have lodgment, I pretend as I go upstairs, lagging behind Jenny and Susan, to have an end in view. I pull on my stockings as I see them pull on theirs. I wait for you to speak and then speak like you do. And at the very end, Bernard says, another one of the figures in Wolfe's novel, the tree alone resisted the eternal flux, the Heraclitan flux, the flow of everything, the disintegration of definitions, social and psychological. And he says, finally, the tree is the only thing that survived it. We haven't survived it. The world hasn't survived it. Everything is becoming indistinguishable. So he says, The tree alone resisted the eternal flux. For I changed and changed. Was Hamlet? Was Shelley? Was the hero whose name I now forget of a novel by Dostoevsky? Was was for a whole term incredibly Napoleon? But was Byron chiefly? For many weeks at a time, it was my part to stride into rooms and fling gloves and coat on the back of chairs scowling slightly. He was Byron. I was always going to the bookcase for another sip of the Divine Specific, another novel, another example. See, just like Quixote. Every book, every window seat was littered with sheets of my unfinished letters to the woman who made me Byron. For it is difficult to finish a letter in someone else's style. There's a life for you washed in this incredible thing. The tree alone resisted the eternal flux. The Heracliton flux uh, was, was time, death, and oblivion. But the flux that I think is relevant to the poem I now want to read to you, which is about the Heracliton uh, flux uh, as well, is the flux in which Bernard and the rest of the figures in uh, Virginia Woolf's novel are caught up. It's the flux of mimetic promiscuity. And its annihilating effect is that of a psychological annulment, a psychological disintegration. So I'm going to read a poem from Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, which meditates upon the Heracliton fire. But the Heracliton fire, I would have us uh, bear in mind as I read it, is the bonfire of the vanities. The Mimetic Flux. Here's the poem. It's entitled, That Nature is a Heracliton Fire and of the Comfort of the Resurrection. Million-fueled nature's bonfire burns on, but quench her bonniest, dearest to her, her clearest-selved spark man, how fast his fire dent, his mark on mind is gone. Both are in an unfathomable. All is in an enormous dark, drowned. O oh, pity and indignation, man shape that shone sheer off, disseveral, a star, death blots black out, or mark. Is any of him at all so stark but vastness blurs and time beats level? Enough. The resurrection. The heart's clarion. Away grief's gasping joyless day's dejection. Across my foundering deck shone a beacon... "...an eternal beam, flesh fade, and mortal trash fall to the residuary worm, world's wildfire leave but ash, in a flash, in a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am." and this jack joke poor potsherd patch matchwood immortal diamond is immortal diamond in this morning's new york times see this is my problem before these sessions begin i go get the new york times and have a little breakfast and read the new york times and no telling what little rock in the road is going to cause me to get go off into no telling where well anyway on the front page of the New York Times was a story from Japan uh, headlined, Students' Killing Displays Dark Side of Japan Schools. I would say that it displays the dark side of something much larger than that, but uh, in, in any events, that's the way it's presented in the New York Times. And I'll just read to you a few things. And Now, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to... Try to show, and I think you understand this, but i want I want to try to show that this you know Martin Buber said, speaking of some of these of these uh stories in the Old Testament uh, and what some of the prophets had to say about what was going on, Buber said uh, these these insights were not born at the writing desk. This happened in in a historical context. These are real experiences, and uh, and the insights that the Bible provides us, or are the or are the, are the inspiration and instruction <coughs> the Bible provides us, comes out of a real historical experience, real cultural experience, and real psychological experience, etc. So, I would say that about the Gospel of John. That the thing about the Gospel of John that we must rediscover is that it is born of experience. The declarations in the Go- Gospel of John are not theological abstractions thrown at uh, second-century Christians by somebody living at the end of the first century. They're, it's a form of autobiography. It is the community saying, this is what happened to us. This was our experience. Uh, so it's born of experience. And for our time, it must be said that it's more radical than we ever realized. It's more demanding and uh, out of sync with the modern sensibilities than we have ever realized. Uh, And it's more relevant to the crisis that we're living in than we've ever realized. So to begin exploring that, I want to go back to this story about uh, a... child in a Japanese middle school who was killed by his fellow students. There, there are these stories that keep cropping up in the paper that could easily have been part of uh, William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Uh, last week I, I recounted a story from India uh, where these the two this young couple was strung up by the, the village because they violated some taboo. Well, this is a different story, but... Uh, It's not unrelated. So I'll just read a couple of things. Uh, the, The New York Times article begins this way. This much is known about the last few hours of Yuhi Kodama's life at junior high school in the small farming town in northern Japan. Once again, he was being bullied by a jeering crowd of his classmates, this time shoved around the giant school gym as dozens of other students watched. Apart from his tormentors and perhaps some witnesses who appear to have been scared into silence, no one yet knows for certain what happened in the ensuing hours. But around 8 p.m., a teacher found the 13-year-old boy suffocated in a closet where he had been stuffed upside down into the center of a rolled-up gym mat. Yuhi's death on January 13th has prompted headlines as an extreme instance of what educators say is the plague of Japan's schools. Namely, the bullying of students who never quite fit in. Students say bullying takes many forms, from beatings uh, to expulsion from the group and so on and so forth. Lots of different examples, but apparently they regard it as a plague in the school system. It reveals, as one commentator put it, the dark side of one of the world's most admired educational systems. But I would say it reveals the dark side of something much more anthropologically universal. Uh, But this this, uh, incident demanded the attention of the Prime Minister himself, uh, Miyazawa, who told Parliament that the young boy's death was, quote, the tip of the iceberg... Uh, but then I think he missed what the iceberg was. He says it's the tip of the iceberg, another disturbing symptom of the pressure cooker atmosphere of Japanese schools, uh, and so on and so forth. I think it's the tip of the iceberg, but I think it's the tip of another bigger iceberg than that. The pressure of the schools create is is no doubt a factor in in this, but it's much bigger than that. What's going on in a situation like that? Uh, it's hard to sum up quickly, but I think we could say this about it. It's a form of social rejuvenation at the expense of the victim. The recreation of, a, of the esprit de corps of a, of a community at the expense of the victim, which has both social and psychological effects. It produces both social and psychological uh, uh, conviction, even the etymology of that word uh, reminds us that it happened with a victim. Uh, so it's a it's a form, an, a, a largely what we would call an unconscious form, of regenerating social and psychological stability at the expense of the victim. And the question is, can we do it otherwise? Because of the crucifixion, we can't do it that way anymore. The crucifixion has has made those it has influenced uh it has it has uh exposed the gears and pulleys of this system such that it has crippled them it has awake awakened an empathy for the victim of such things so that we can't do it anymore those people who are even tangentially exposed to the to the crucifixion uh and its cultural effects. I can't do it that way anymore. That doesn't mean we won't keep trying to do it, but our our efforts will be increasingly disastrous. Is there another way? I came upon this thing from Bultmann uh, not long ago. Bultmann, and this is a commentary on the Gospel of John. He said, Man cannot act otherwise than as he is, but in the revealer's call, uh, that's Bultmann's way of talking about the... Johanna and Jesus the revealer in the revealer's call there opens up to him the opportunity of being otherwise than he was in other words the question is not it's not a question so much of moral uh, as it is as it is ontological or existential in the first instance it's not quite, so we we can only behave according to who we are the question is can we be somebody else boltman says man cannot otherwise cannot act otherwise than it what he is, but in the revealer's call there opens up to him the possibility of being otherwise than he was. He can exchange his whence, his origin, his essence, for another. He can, quote, be born again and thus attain to his true being. Well, that's more or less the framework that I want to use this morning because that's what comes up in the two major stories that I want to have us look at today the story of Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee visiting Jesus at night, and the story of Jesus visiting the Samaritan town and having an encounter with the Samaritan woman uh, in in chapter 4 of John's Gospel. Let me go back to the question of this Gospel being uh, based on experience. When we read in this story that Andrew or Simon or Philip or Nathaniel came and had a certain experience uh, when they encountered Jesus. It's important for us to realize that that the evangelist is telling his own autobiography, the autobiography of his community, he is telling us what their experience is in terms of these accounts that were part of their cultural memory about the historical Jesus. But this gospel is being written 50 years after the historical Jesus. And it's not interested in historiography. It's interested in, in professing what, has, what their experience is. So they tell the story of the effect of Jesus on Andrew and, and Simon and, and Philip and Nathaniel and so on and so forth based on their own experience. And what, was, what must have been, and what clearly from this gospel was, uh, a great discovery, the great discovery of the early church was that the experience that these people who knew the historical Jesus had in his presence could still be had even though he was long dead. And this really is, lies at the heart of the Christian movement. They realize it was still... And that's where we get you, you know, the, the idea of the spirit of Christ, the living spirit of Christ, or what the church calls the risen Christ, or the Christ of faith or the paraclete. All these are ways of talking about the the astonishing fact that though he's dead, he lives on. That it's still possible under certain circumstances to have precisely not only the same kind of encounter that, that Peter and those who knew Jesus had, but an even more profound one. It's possible to have an even more profound one. There's a a sense in which as time goes on, the paraclete, the the spirit of the living Christ will have more effect on people rather than less because of the passage of time, that it is a growing phenomenon and not not one that's attenuated from the historical event. So there are a number of instances in the Gospels, in the synoptics, for instance in Luke where you get the road to Emmaus story and uh, this figure travels with the people after the crucifixion towards the little town of Emmaus and he talks to them about Scripture and it's only in the breaking of the bread that they recognize him. He's there, he's with them and they realize it at the breaking of the bread which is Luke's way of talking about uh, the the uh, what happens at the Eucharist and the actual experience, not the theory of, not the theology of or the ecclesiology of but the actual experience uh, that the... That that uh, Christ lives and can be experienced in a life-altering way, that it's possible to experience a life-altering encounter with Christ years, decades, millennia after he's dead under certain circumstances. And then the question is, what are the circumstances? The church's uh, liturgical, scriptural, sacramental resources Exists as far as I'm concerned for one reason, and that is to bring about that encounter, and to uh, and to provide for people uh, throughout history the, the spiritual and social and psychological uh, benefits of that encounter. I've focused in the past often on the cultural aspect of it, and by beginning by beginning with that story about Japan, I sort of return to the cultural aspects of it. But I think we have to look underneath that at a more profound one, which is the psychological aspects of it. Too bad we don't have another word uh, for psychological, because the idea of psychological has been commandeered by the, by the psychological sciences of our time, which I think uh, are, do not probe as deeply as this Gospel does. But, but that's how we talk about these things. So I'll just refer to it as the psychological effects. Um, we're living in a time when the enlightenment idea of individuality is declaring its bankruptcy. Social scientists of varying stripes are feverishly uh, investigating this thing they call the, the crisis of subjectivity in the modern world. And for those with eyes to see, their evidence abounds that the modern self is suffering from a chronic and occasionally an acute instability. It's it's, uh, fragmenting and dissolving, pathologizing. And I think that's because it has no... uh, The cultural frame of reference, which used to give it stability, is breaking down and... uh, and uh, there seems to be no alternative to it, and so as it breaks down, instinctively we return to those. Uh, we, uh, as it breaks down, the mimetic reflexes that are generated by the breakdown of a, of the conventional self, incline us to return again to those to those uh, uh, collective spasms, which created culture in the first place, like the one that happened in Japan and like the one that happened in India and, and like versions of them that happen all over the place. Now, this is an attempt, Those these these strange events are attempts to rejuvenate social and psychological existence, though those participating in them don't know that. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he said they know not what they do. Well, they don't know that. They think they're doing it because, because uh, the, of the of the, the you know the color of the skin of the person or the or the moral disrepute of the person that they're they're ganging up against and so on they don't realize what it is they're doing question is is there another way can the modern does the modern world have an alternative the uh, when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman he says uh Salvation comes from the Jews. Uh, And I want to turn to some Jews from whom salvation comes as a a way of talking about this before we get into the gospel itself. First, to turn to uh, Gerhard von Rad's analysis of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. Von Rad says, "...the prophets became persons. They could say I, capital I, in a way never before heard in Israel." At the same time, it has become clear to us that the eye of which these men were allowed to become conscious was very different from our present-day conception of personality. They discovered another kind of personhood. And it was, of course, a personhood based on their God-relatedness, or you could say their God-centeredness which is precisely what makes uh, the Jesus of the Gospels distinct. His, as, as increasing numbers of exegetes are realizing, it was his, what some call his Abba experience. You know, Abba is the Aramaic word for uh, father, intimate form of the word for father. Uh, and in the G- Gospel of John, it's, of course, the, the father. The, Jesus does what the father wills. It's this intimate connection with the Father that gives Jesus' personality, its uniqueness. And if the Gospel of John is correct, Jesus has come into the world to make possible precisely that same kind of intimacy uh, between others and the Father through his example, through his mediation. So I just want to talk a little bit using Martin Buber Salvation comes from the Jews. Martin Buber is one of the most insightful people. Uh, in a way, Martin Buber is the early prophet of this. His his little book, I and Thou, written in 1915, 1920, something like that, uh, is, is prophetic in this regard. And I want to quote a few things, not from I and Thou, but from some later essays when he reflects on these matters. Buber says, To become means to become for something. It means to be made ready for the one relation which can be entered into only with the one for whose sake man exists. You know, the catechism that I was trained with as a small child uh, said that the main purpose of life was to, was to know, love, and serve God. That was the first purpose of life. Uh, and, of course, catechisms have fallen into Disuse in our day, but that's a pretty clear statement of it, and it couldn't be more laughable in terms of the modern world. I mean, it's such a, it's 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 a sort of charming, uh, and ridiculous idea, in the modern world. But this is precisely what Buber is saying, it's precisely what Jesus was saying, it's what the prophets were saying. It's a very radical idea. The question is, how do we become real? That's really the question. How do we become? The the New Testament says. Jesus was real in a way that nobody's ever been real and that none of us since then have been real. And if we want to be real in a, in a way that remote, that's remotely uh, comparable to the way he was real, we have to use him as a model. It's that simple. There was one real one and the rest of us, we're proto-humans, you know. We're proto-humans. We're humanoids that are, that, that are constantly being jerked around by our, by our own mimetic compulsions and, and driven into these little frenzies, which conjure up delusions, make us think that we're righteous or that uh, or that we're real, uh, and so on and so forth. But New Testament says it's not so. We're lost in sin. See, not not to be not to immediately turn a moral, put a moral tint on that word sin. When Paul talks about being in sin, he's not talking about little bad things that you do. He's talking about living in delusion. And the New Testament said there was one who didn't. And if there's any hope of us uh, extricating ourselves from that mess, there's no hope of us extricating ourselves from that mess. We can only be extricated. We can only be saved by the by the by the revelatory power of something other than ourselves. But if there's any hope, we must we must have a model. For we, someone must lead us out of this of this. Uh, you know, this imprisonment, another exodus kind of thing. And that's what Buber's talking about. He says, uh, and to me it's delicious that he says it in his essay on Heidegger, he saw from, he, he, the stuff I've raised about Heidegger a few weeks ago, he, he doesn't get into that, but he saw Heidegger's, the 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 flaw in Heidegger's idea is that, uh, is that the spiritual, person the spiritual man is is uh, autonomous and buber says not so so buber says real existence is comprehensible only in connection with the nature of the being to which he stands in relation there is no real personality without relationship in the midst of that you know multitude of relationships there is what Buber calls an essential relationship that is, that is decisive. And here's what he says about the essential relationship. In an essential relationship, the barriers of individual being are in fact breached and a new phenomenon appears which can only appear in this way. One life opens to another the other becomes present not merely in the imagination or in the feelings but in the depths of one's substance so that one experiences the mystery of the other being in the mystery of one's own. The two participate in one another's lives in very fact not psychically but ontically that is to say ontologically. Ontologically. So it's not a psychological phenomenon. It's an ontological phenomenon. When Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, it's exactly what he's talking about. He's not talking about psychological projection. He's talking about something much more profound than that. When Jesus says, uh, it is the Father who is working through me, it's not some kind of funny business. He's talking about the self that has Emptied itself to become the the conduit for some uh, for a reality greater than itself so if you don't mind i'll just go back over that because I think it's so important and so helpful for understanding both the Gospel of John and the letters of Paul by the way, Martin Buber had trouble with paul and as you can understand anybody who's uh, 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 any Jewish religious person would have trouble with Paul because he had such an animus, uh, but in a certain at the re, at the core of paul's uh, letters, he and Buber are of a of a mind I think so Buber says in an essential relation, the barriers of individual being are f- in fact breached, and a new phenomenon appears which can Appear only in this way. It cannot appear in any other way. That's very important. It can't, you, it can't happen otherwise. You say, well, wait a minute. Can't it happen by me, uh, wh- whatever, meditating, walking on the beach, uh, reading profound books, uh, etc.? Et and Buber says, it can only happen this way. One life opens to another. The other becomes present not merely in the imagination, not merely in the feelings, but in the depths of one's substance so that one experiences the mystery of the other being in the mystery of one's own being. The two participate in one another's lives in very fact, not psychically, but ontologically. In the world of modern-day psychology, psyches... Create relationships. In the biblical world, relationships create psyches. And then the question is uh, given this nature of the human self, is it possible? Are we condemned? Because all of us are in the same soup. If I can only become real by falling under the profound influence of the other, as long as that other is, as the Bible would say, a fallen creature, part of the same, caught up in the same, uh, at one level or another, caught up in the same, more or less, funny business that I am, it's like two, as Shakespeare says in, in uh, Macbeth two spent swimmers who just try to you know save each other how does it happen all of the see all of the theological jargon of the New Testament and all the theological jargon that that was produced in an attempt to uh, to understand it falls away and finally becomes that it is this is one who was not caught up in the same funny business all the rest of us are caught up in uh, and if one would have that essential relation with him, then one would begin the process of coming up out of this delusion that we spend most of our lives living in and the exciting discovery which is which we now call the resurrection that the early church made was that it was that that the possibility of that relationship was not extinguished by the crucifixion that the historical passage of time, the death of the historical Jesus, did not diminish the possibility of of that relationship. The author of the letter of Hebrews says this, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiant light of God's glory and the perfect copy of God's nature. This perfect copy of God's nature, the the Greek word is hypostasis, which is translated... Uh, Often, the letter of Hebrews translated as uh, person. That's where we, that's really the origin, this idea of three persons, the Trinitarian idea that came much, much later. Three persons in one God. He's a perfect, he's a person to the extent that he is a perfect replica of the Maker of all persons. We are all made in the image and likeness of the Creator. All personhood, real personhood. Uh, I'm tempted always to make a distinction between personality, which is this sort of little glitzy thing that we conjure up in order to do the best we can in the social world, and and real personhood. You know, the personhood is made, persons are made in the image and likeness of of God, uh, and Jesus is the perfect replica of God's image, according to the letter of Hebrews, the perfect replica of God's image. The hypostasis, which is which means to stand under. Perfect replica because he perfectly stood under the God who he came to understand by doing that. In other words, he became the revelation of that God by perfectly emptying himself of all the personality traits and becoming a person in a real sense, not in merely social sense. Well, these are still, is kind of imponderables maybe, but uh, there's an echo of that, by the way, in, in First Timothy, there's an echo of that same thing. Uh, the author of 1 Timothy, uh, Paul, Paul says, there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and humanity, him, himself a human. Christ Jesus. That sums up what this at the psychological level. That sums up what the New Testament is all about. Now we can take it or leave it. We moderns can take it or leave it, but that is the outrageous uh, claim that the New Testament makes. This gospel can, uh, hits us with the most outrageous declaration imaginable, which is if you get up close enough to this figure, we're tell whose story we're telling. It will change your life in ways that you cannot imagine. And, and as a reader of this gospel or as the modern world, we say, well, that's a, I don't know. And the gospel says, come and see. Come and see. Well, there are two stories that I think, right at this point in the gospel, the gospel is structured for all of its goofy arrangement and its haphazardness, There's a structure of this gospel that's quite marvelous. And so it raises this question about the encounter with Jesus. And then it begins to raise the question about the problematics of that encounter. What thwarts it, what makes it possible, and so on. And then it presents two very uh, striking stories about that encounter. One is with Nicodemus, the upright leader of the Jews, Uh, Pharisee meant uh, the purified ones, uh, a a strict, orthodox, moral paragon, and the Samaritan woman, who is a, by Jewish standards, a heretic, uh, and a loose woman, a a woman of moral disrepute, The Pharisee comes to see Jesus at night. Jesus has the encounter with the Samaritan woman at noon. The theme under which the encounter with Nicodemus takes place is the theme of birth, and the theme under which the encounter with the Samaritan woman takes place is the theme of marriage. But both have to do with this one phenomenon, the question of whether or not a decisive bond with between the person and Christ can take place. And what are, the, uh, what, are the f- what are the things that frustrate that possibility? What are the things that get in the way of that possibility? So in a way, it's a very interesting study because you have somebody who's perfectly upright and so on, somebody who's in disrepute, a man, a woman, a uh, no. orthodox, heretic, etc. It's an interesting combination, a diptych. The problem with Nicodemus is that he already has a kind of sense of self, a coherent, uh, integrated sense of self. He's a Pharisee. He's an upright one. He's a leader of his people. He's Mr. Rectitude. He's been doing it right. And uh Martin Buber says, Each of us is encased in an armor whose task it is to ward off signs. Okay, here's what happens with Nicodemus. You know the story. I won't dwell on it except to try to explore a few of its details. Nicodemus comes at night. He's an upright Jew. He's a a prominent Pharisee. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform signs such as you perform, unless God were with him. So, he's come. He has come to Jesus, ready to encounter a teacher, a performer of signs, who clearly is one uh, who is stands in God's favor, a teacher and a performer of signs. Uh, in the. World of biblical exegesis, there is a great movement these days to reduce, uh, to to get back to the historical Jesus, and by by and large, it has been a movement to return to the to the to the Jesus who is a to is a sage, who is a teacher, who is full of proverbial wisdom, uh, who's a kind of um, uh, quaint philosopher, and, and so on. And there's a little of this in and and uh, Nicodemus, he thinks Jesus is going to be a teacher, and so he's come to him at night, by the way. He's come to him at night because he doesn't want to be caught coming to him. He has this reputation to consider, you see. Jesus ought to be coming to him, he, as far as the system is concerned. But he goes to him, and he says, You're obviously a teacher and performer of signs. And Jesus never answers the question on the level it is asked, says... I tell you most solemnly, unless a man is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Implying first that the kingdom of God is right there to be seen and that this very good, upright... There's nothing hypocritical about Nicodemus except that he comes at night. I mean, he is an upright, moral uh, and religiously uh, centered man. Jesus says the kingdom's there. You can't see it, and the reason you can't see it is because you can, you your moral rectitude can improve to the point of near perfection, your Pharisaical uh, practices can become perfectly pure, etc. You cannot see the kingdom because it is not a matter of those things. It is a matter of of throwing off your old self and uh, discovering a new one it is a matter of literally being born not literally it's a matter of being born again or jesus says born from above and nicodemus says what does that mean now clearly the, the author of this gospel is exploring the questions that people raised when they first encountered this idea that one had to be born again what does that mean We don't even like to talk about because the, you know, the fundamentalists have commandeered it, and everybody, all the people are so nervous that they might be thought of as fundamentalists. So we don't even talk about it. What does it mean that somebody might be? What does it mean to be born again? Well, that's what Nicodemus is asking. He says, "Do I? Can a person, grown person, go back into his mother's womb? What are you talking about?" (laughs) He's dumbfounded. We should be as dumbfounded as he is. He's he's closer to the truth than we are. He's dumbfounded at least. We think oh, born again. Well, it means something. I don't know. it Must mean something. Maybe Billy Graham knows. We don't. We should be totally dumbfounded. What in the world are you talking about? And Jesus says, "You have to be born of the of water and of the Spirit." Well, the fact that he's talking about being born again, being born anew. What's what's to be noticed here? I think is not. Uh, so much the metaphor of birth, but that no lesser form of transformation will work. That the situation is such that there is no, and this is just exactly what Paul discovered. Paul, by the way, was a Pharisee. Paul had been Nicodemus, you see, only Nicodemus with a little uh, uh, violence thrown on. Paul had been this, and when Paul realized you can't get there from here, you see, no matter how hard you try no matter how good you become, no matter how morally or religiously scrupulous you become, you can't get there from here. Something more profound has to take place. And that's just what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. It's not enough. You see, the, the sinners and the, and the prostitutes are closer to this transformation than you are because they are more willing to let go of the old self than you are. So it's not a matter of changing your mind or changing your moral behavior or of uh, following a teacher or learning something new. It's something really profound. Now then the question is, how does... The question is, what does... First question is, what does that change entail? And the second question is, how does it come about? Jesus goes on, it seems like a total non sequitur. He says the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. That is how it is with all who are born of the Spirit. In other words, they have there is an integrity to their lives that can't you can't cannot be seen. It is not an adherence to a set of rules. It is not a some kind of strict, uh, you know, pattern of behavior or any of that. It's something invisible, but it's, it is. They are they are obeying something that's much more elusive and much freer. It is an obedience which is indistinguishable from freedom. There is a wind blowing in them and blowing through them. That is perfect freedom and perfect obedience at the same time, and this would be this would be inconceivable to the to the Pharisaical mind. It 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 literally knocked Paul for a loop that you could be free and obedient at the same time, ultimately free and ultimately obedient at the same time, and then one's life is moving according to this mysterious spirit just as the wind blows. We can see its effects, but we cannot we cannot see the way you can like a, uh, markers on the road would say, okay, you go this way and then you go this way. No, something more mysterious. It seems like a non sequitur when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and says, as uh, soon as he's talking about birth, re- being born again, and then he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it, you can't see it, and that's the way it is for all those who are born of the Spirit. It doesn't quite fit, but then when you read this, the passage in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes from which this passage was taken, you get it. It goes like this: Just as you do not know the way of the wind, or the mysteries of a woman with child, you cannot know the work of God who is behind it all. So there's a link between birth and this wind in Ecclesiastes and the, and the author of this gospel has seen that or the Johannine Jesus has seen that and a- exploited it. So we're back to the question of birth. It is like a birth, how this thing comes about, how it is that we get to this place where we're behaving according to the wind. The spirit is moving through us. Our lives have integrity and coherence because of the spirit to which we are being completely obedient and as a result of which we have become liberated, how does that come about? He's talking about a different kind of self, a different, as Paul would say, a new anthropos, a new kind of coming into being. The question would be, when does the first coming into being happen? Remember, Buber says, real existence is comprehensible only in connection with the nature of the being to which one stands in relation. So the question is, when did we first come into being and how can we come into a new one? And on that score, I wanted to read to you from Wordsworth's book two of the Prelude, in which I think Wordsworth provides us with the, with the language for appreciating this idea of a rebirth. Wordsworth understands that we come in, just as Buber does, that we come into being in our first relatedness. And he describes it in this passage. It goes as follows. Blessed the infant babe, nursed in his mother's arms, the babe who sleeps upon his mother's breast, who... When his soul claims manifest kindred with an earthly soul, doth gather passion from his mother's eye. There's that moment, it's like uh, like the moment on the Sistine Chapel, you know, where the fingers touch. There's that moment when the connection with the mother, as, you see, what, Wordsworth is describing is not something that happens in a moment like that necessarily. He's, ha- he's describing it as, a, as an instant event. But he's des- what's important is that he's describing the birth of the self. The birth of the self. Not the birth of the human being, but the birth of the self in relation, in relation. So I'll probably end up going over this poem ten times because there's a lot of it, so I just want to go back. Bless the infant babe nursed in his mother's arms, the babe who sleeps upon his mother's breast, who, when his soul claims manifest kindred with an earthly soul. This is why we have to have the incarnation, by the way, if we're going to have a new self. It has to be an earthly one. When his soul claims manifest kindred with an earthly soul, doth gather passion from his mother's eye, such feelings pass into his torpid life like an awakening breeze same connection that's made in the Gospel of John the book of Ecclesiastes between the movement of the wind the movement of the spirit and the awakening of the self in relation Wordsworth goes on and hence his mind even in the first trial of its powers is prompt and watchful now get this eager to combine in one appearance all the elements and parts of the same object else detached and loath to coalesce because the new self has one what boother calls essential relationship a singular essential relationship the world becomes a piece the world is made whole because the the self has one fundamental, grounding relationship. And it's because of that that one lives in a world. Now, there are two ways of living in a world. world in the biblical sense is cosmos. It means the ordered world. There are two ways of living in the ordered world. One is to live in delusion, to participate in the, in the, in the mob frenzies that end in, in, a, in, in sacred violence, and in the transfiguration of that violence, and in the order that comes out of that. That's one kind of way to live in an ordered world. And then the myth tells you what's going on and what, how everything is, and you, and you know how it's all ordered, and you know, how re, you know how to reorder it if you have to, and so on. That's one way of living. This is another way of living in an ordered world, that is to have one relationship, a grounding, a psychologically and spiritually grounding relationship, which makes everything into one thing. It's all held together because the relationship upon which the self is based is singular. So, as a result of this, it says, the mind, even in the first trials of its powers, is prompt and watchful, eager to combine in one appearance all the elements and parts of the same object, else detached and loath to coalesce. Otherwise, it's fragmented. It's, it's, uh, it's experienced episodically. It's experienced haphazardly. It doesn't have coherence. It's loath to coalesce without this experience. Now, you can... Well, let me go on with words. Then he says the matriculation begins. Thus, day by day, subjected to the discipline of love, the discipline of love is very much like this freedom and obedience at the same time. Discipline means to be a disciple, to be a follower, okay, to be related in that way. Subjected to the discipline of love, his organs and recipient faculties are quickened, are more vigorous, <coughs> his mind spreads tenacious of the forms which it receives in one beloved presence. Nay and more, in that most apprehensive habitude, That most apprehensive habit is a way of saying most fully alive, really alive, eager for the world. And those sensations which have been derived from his beloved presence, there exists a virtue which irradiates and exalts all objects through all intercourse of sense. Emphatically, such a being lives. No outcast he, bewildered and depressed. Isn't that marvelous? I think it's a way to talk about what John's talking about here, the rebirth. When Jesus had this experience, he had it at the Jordan River and in the desert, no doubt. And his whole life from then on was lived in relationship to his father. There is something not only uh, has to do with birth in this relationship, but that has to do with a new parent to live in that intimate rapport with a new parental figure. And when we say, and I think it's the, probably the best form of Christian spirituality, when we say of Jesus that he is our Lord and brother, I think I think it's important, I feel it's important that it's both. You see? That uh, he becomes our, our example that we follow. But he is our brother in the sense that it is with, his, with, the, with the God whom Jesus called Father that this, that this relationship has finally to be affected. That Jesus is the mediator of that relationship uh, to the Father. And if that can be had, what happened to this little infant babe in Wordsworth's poem happens to an uh, adult. That's, that, I think, is what rebirth is about. Well, there's a transition from the story of Nicodemus to the, Samar- the story of the Samaritan woman And it's a little appearance made by John. And uh, he comes back in. uh, We see him baptizing. uh, And there's very little that's new about this story of John. It's the same John. He's saying, no, I'm not the the important one. Uh, I'm here to, I must grow, uh, he must grow greater, I must grow smaller, and so on. The only new thing is a metaphor that he uses. He says, the bride is only for the bridegroom. And yet the bridegroom's friend, who stands there and listens, is glad when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So the only new thing John introduces is the theme of marriage and Jesus as the bridegroom. So that's, we have to recognize. that's the same uh, issue raised in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, but under a new theme. Now it's the, the, the same question as the question of this, this encounter. Uh, with Christ at a deep level, at a life-altering level. Uh, But now, instead of it being the theme, being handled under the theme of rebirth, it's handled under the theme of marriage. Jesus passes through a Samaritan uh, region, stops at a Samaritan town, in fact, the town where where Jacob's well is, the well that was purportedly dug by the ancestor Jacob. And he stops at the well tired by the journey this is even though this is a a glorified Christ almost all the way through this gospel he is the incarnate Christ he's tired from the journey and he sits down at the well now we have to realize that there are two things going on here Jacob's well is something like the water jars in in the wedding feast at Cana story it's a it's a place revered religious place that uh, Jesus is going to replace with another kind of nourishment uh, so it has it, it has a kind of parallel there, but more interestingly uh, the well is where in, biblical, in in the biblical world, the well is where one goes where the meeting takes place between the uh, the two people who are then betrothed to each other. In our world, you know, we have these things called... We used to call them fern bars. I don't know what they call them anymore. They're much raunchier now than they were when we call them fern bars. But we, sometimes we call them watering holes, uh, <laughs> where people go to meet one another. Well, in the biblical world, the well was the watering hole where these important meetings took place. Isaac met Rebekah at a well. Jacob met Rachel at a well. Moses met Zipporah at a well. So, uh, if one's up on one's biblical uh, symbolism, there's a certain drama here, you see. Uh, Jesus stops at the well, and his disciples go off into town to buy some food. And lo and behold, this woman shows up. Uh, And she shows up at the sixth hour. And she's alone. Most Jews would, not be, would, would avoid going to a Samaritan region because the Samaritans were, were, were uh, uh, a, a, a religious outcasts and to associate with them would be to be contaminated by their sinfulness. So already Jesus has ignored that taboo. And now a woman is coming out by herself alone at noon. Now, women went to the well for water, but they always did it at the break of day. When it was cool, the water was high. Uh, and, they all, and they always did it together socially because often there was a stone covering the well and it took more than one person and so on. Clearly this woman is an outcast. She is sneaking to the well at noon in the same way that Nicodemus was sneaking to Jesus at night. Her Even though it's the bright daylight, it's her time to go there unnoticed because nobody else will be there in the same way that Nicodemus came to Jesus that way. Uh, So there's a little bit of drama here. And when the woman came up, Jesus asked her for a drink. And she said, What, you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And And then John tells us, Jews, in fact, do not associate with Samaritans, as we know from so many passages in the New Testament. He says, If you only knew what God is offering you, uh, it is you who would ask him to give you a drink, for he could give you living water, living water. She's a she's you, you would say a kind of a streetwise woman. She she's she's from the Bronx. She looks at him, you know, and she says, "You have no bucket, and this is a deep well. How can you get this?" living water no bucket I think is an interesting one Jesus has no no technique he has no plan and this is a remarkable thing about the Jesus of John's gospel particularly he's not a teacher he has no he has no cosmic agenda he doesn't there is nothing there's no program there's no technique No system for changing the world. There's nothing. All this gospel presents is is an encounter with this person. That's all there is. And I think that's echoed in this thing of the Samaritan woman, you have no bucket. How can you do that? How can you quench the thirst of the world if you don't have a bucket? just this morning I was looking at this it reminded me of that story many of you have heard it but I had an experience like this when I saw Howard Thurman that time Howard Thurman was this marvelous uh, black minister in San Francisco who had the fellowship church and uh, I went to him one time thrashing around what to do with my life in the 70s and he said early 70s I guess and I said well the world is I kept talking about what the world the world needs this and the world needs that when I was finished he said don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who've come alive. But it was a way of, I mean, I was talking buckets and how deep the well is and that kind of thing, you know. And he just cut through it. It's not a question of that. It's a question of coming alive. Uh, and that's and that's implicit, I think, in this encounter. And Jesus says, Whoever drinks the water that you give will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I have to give will never thirst. And uh, it shall turn into a living spring inside him. And it will well up to eternal life. This idea of never thirsting, there are several other instances of it in this gospel. Uh, Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. And if you come to me, you will never thirst again. And I think we have to take that seriously. There's something there, uh, about. about uh, and the question is, what, what do we? What's he mean by thirst? See, uh, the world is parched. The world is parched. Uh, and this thirst will uh, drive us to all kinds of craziness. You know, uh, imagine picking up tomorrow's paper and looking at all the craziness. And saying to yourself, "They thirst, you see then you get I think the depth of this metaphor: they thirst, you know they're they're raping and plundering in Bosnia, they thirst, you know they're they're going wild at some party on Long Island. they thirst, etc and Jesus says, You will never thirst again, and so she says give me some of that water so that I will never get thirsty and never have to come here again. Now, when she says never have to come here again, she means never have to come here at noon, sneak away from the village. Now, if the water he's going to give quenches a thirst that will keep her from having to come here again, I want to just unpack this a little bit. I don't have any idea what the evangelist had in mind but if you try to go into the background of this you say if her thirst is what caused her to come there at noon then her thirst is what caused her to fall into social uh, uh, under the judgment of her social peers her thirst caused her to behave in some flamboyant way which caused her to be an outcast and made her come at noon and She says, "If you can quench that thirst, then i won't that won't happen, and I won't have to come here at noon. I won't have to suffer this. See she's not complaining about having to get a drink every day; she's complaining about social ostracism, and she realized the gospel structurally the gospel realizes that it's thirst, whatever this thirst is, that has driven her into this flamboyant behavior which has caused her to be ostracized which has made it necessary to only go at noon. And she's saying, if I could get a drink of that water that will quench that thirst, the flamboyant behavior will cease, my, my social situation will cease to be as, such as it is, and I won't have to come here at noon. Well, what was that then you get, then we're set up for this next question. It seems like he's about to give her a drink, however he's going to do it, of this water that will well up to eternal life. But, lo and behold, there's, a couple of preliminaries have to be taken care of. Out of nowhere, except we've been prepared for it slightly by that appearance by John, out of nowhere Jesus says, go get your husband and bring him here. It's non-sequitur. What's that have to do with it? I thought we were talking water and thirst, see? What does this have to do with water and thirst? What does it have to do with water and thirst? And she said, I have no husband. And he said, you're right to say you have no husband. You have had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, I can tell you're a prophet. What is this all about? Is there any... You see, I think we must always ask about the structure of the gospel. Is this misplaced, this conversation about... Has Jesus decided to now uh, go off on some little moral harangue about this woman? He's talking about this quenching thirst and all this, and then suddenly we're talking about how many husbands she's had? It's very uncharacteristic of Jesus to go off on a moral harangue. It's structurally important to this gospel because it's a question of thirst and what we do with it. This woman is suffering from psychological promiscuity. Forget the sexual element; It's very important. When the sexual element comes up, as I think I said last week, we miss it we miss the realization that beneath that is a, is, a, is a psychological promiscuity, which is the problem. What's preventing this woman from uh, having the encounter with Jesus, which would quench her thirst, is her penchant for psychological promiscuity, her inability to focus on one, to commit to one. And the language of this section is very interesting. When Jesus first speaks of Jacob's well, when he first arrives there, he uses the Greek uses the Greek word which means a spring. When the woman says to him, uh, "You have no bucket, and the well is deep," she uses a word which means cistern, standing water. And then she says, "Jacob gave us this well." Same word, the cistern, standing water. Uh, so are you better? Are you greater than Jacob? And when Jesus says. Uh, I, I, I will give you living water. He uses the word for spring again. So the fact, when Jesus shows up, it's a spring. And when he leaves, it's a cistern. That's really amazing. That's really amazing. The, his, the impact of his arrival of his incarnation is to render the existing uh, system, the existing source uh, defunct.